If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. We are delighted to have with us this morning the Reverend Dr. Kathy McCallie. Before joining the faculty at Phillips Theological Seminary in 2013, Dr. McCallie served 26 years in pastoral ministry. In 1997, she founded a new church start, Church of the Open Arms UCC. In addition to her Master of Divinity degree, she earned a master's degree in philosophy and PhD in political science. Dr. McCallie taught government and ethics at the University of Oklahoma, Oklahoma State University, and Oklahoma City Community College. Obviously, she is equal opportunity education. She currently serves as Associate Professor of Ministerial Leadership and Ethics and Director of the Doctor of Ministry program at Phillips Theological Seminary. Please help me in giving a warm Mayflower welcome to Reverend Dr. Kathy McCallie. Will you pray with me? We don't like to use the word lynching, Holy One, so, so we say that Ahmad Arbery was chased and fatally shot by three white men. But what happened to Ahmad Arbery was, by definition, a lynching, the killing of someone for an alleged offense with or without a legal trial. Now the white men who murdered him are on trial, assured of rights and privileges that they denied Ahmad. And here at home, we are working to stop the killing of another black man scheduled for execution later this week. And we are working because we know too much about wrongful convictions, because our penal system is not without racial bias, because we have to stop murdering people as a matter of faith for your peace, which surpasses all understanding that it would guard the hearts and minds of the families of Ahmad and Julius, for your justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, for these things and more, we pray. Amen. 
Our scripture lesson this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My strength is exalted in my God. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my victory. There is no holy one like the Lord, no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bowels of the mighty are broken, and the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry are fat with spoil. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He makes low. He also exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might does one prevail. The Lord, his adversaries shall be shattered. The Most High will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. I'm Kathy McCallie. It's a joy to be here today. When we started Church of the Open Arms back in 1997, I was preaching from this pulpit and in this sanctuary every week for about a year, and it's fun to see a few friends who were a part of those early years, and especially my mom, who I thank for being here with us again today. Our scripture reading from Mark's Gospel is from Mark chapter 13. God's people long ago left this word for us today, so listen now for a word from our God. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what magnificent buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another, all will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Heart of hearts, 
Break open this word today that we might feast and be transformed. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts serve you well. Amen. So Jesus predicted the destruction of the great temple. And when he said those words, his hearers would have immediately recognized a reference to the prophetic tradition of the Hebrew prophets who, more than a hundred years before, had predicted the destruction of the first temple. In Micah, Chapter 3, verse 12, Micah said, The temple hill will become a mound covered in a thicket of weeds. About a hundred years later, the prophet Jeremiah echoed Micah and said, and this is in Jeremiah 26, 18, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. Indeed, the temple that Solomon had built was destroyed in 586 BCE. It was being rebuilt, still being expanded under Herod the Great during the time of Jesus. And scholars tell us that most of the stones for the building were, get ready for it, 37 and a half feet long, 18 feet wide, and 12 feet thick. So these are the stones that Jesus says, not one will be left standing on another. It will all be destroyed. And indeed, that temple was destroyed about 40 years after this conversation. But we must remember that the Hebrew prophets were known not so much for predicting the future, but for diagnosing the spiritual and moral health of their society. When Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, that was an inconceivable, mind-blowing kind of prediction. The role of the temple was so central to that ancient world that to think of it being wiped away, it's hard to come up with a contemporary parallel. Maybe it would be like imagining, trying to imagine that the whole electrical grid in the United States was wiped away, or the internet, or the stock market was completely demolished. What would be an equivalent that would drastically change our lives, that would be kind of like the end of the world? That's what it was like for the Jewish people when the temple was destroyed. Maybe it would be somewhat like predicting that the polar ice caps would melt. And as Christian people, it's important that we not misinterpret scripture by an anti-Semitic reading of this text, a reading that would be disrespectful or dishonor our Jewish sisters and brothers. Because too often this kind of text has been read by Christians with a supersessionism, that imagines that Judaism was just like this foundation that had to be wiped away for Christianity to be born, to supersede the Jewish faith. And I am sure that is not what Jesus intended at all. 
His point was, don't put your trust in worldly might and accomplishment. Don't trust in wealth, power over others, and might. In the next conversation, then, he goes on to say to the disciples, don't be troubled. Well, that's a little hard. All of this talk about destruction and world's ending, but don't be anxious, he says. Don't be troubled. Talk about global disasters can make our own personal needs seem pretty insignificant. But the Bible teaches that God cares about the personal longings of our hearts, the needs of individuals, as well as the political movements and social upheaval of world events. And so we read Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. These words of a young woman who had been barren for many years, longing for children, praying for children. Hannah finally gives birth to Samuel. And it is the joy of this new life that causes her to utter these words about the greatness of God, the God of justice and equality, who brings down the mighty who lifts up the lowly. Hannah's song gives voice to the gratitude, hope, and joy of fertility, of motherhood, of a new baby. What greater miracle or sign of the mystery of the holy could there be? And so when the followers of Jesus hear Jesus talk about not putting their trust in might, his teaching echoes the teaching of those before in his own Jewish faith who encouraged people not to be seduced by worldly power and military might. Just after he predicts the destruction of the, te of the temple then, Jesus is sitting with his disciples on the hillside, the Mount of Olives, across from the hill where the glorious temple stood, and his followers ask him, so when is this destruction going to take place? He responds, not telling them when. In fact, he says no one knows when these things will happen, but tells them how to behave during times of sorrow, destruction, and disaster. He says, don't be anxious, don't be troubled, be patient, don't be led astray. Continue to share good news. He says, continue to share the gospel. The gospel, the good news must be preached. And I feel sure that what he meant by the gospel was not some kind of domineering message about what people are supposed to believe, but was actually good news of God's love and deliverance. It's still scary to think about international war, especially to imagine something like World War III, given advances in war technology like drone warfare. It's hard to remember that right now bombs are exploding and bullets are flying. 
There are places where worlds are colliding and ending. In places like Myanmar, Belarus, and Ethiopia today. But as a U.S. citizen, I've lived most of my life feeling fairly sheltered from war. And I have to admit that that's partly because of the superior firepower, the military might of the United States as a hegemonic superpower. As people in the United States were prone to have confidence in our own ability, our own superior intellect, to have arrogance about our way of life, to think that we can be insulated somehow from some of the terrors and sorrows of war in other places of the world. As citizens, we have some influence over international action. In a few months, I'll be taking a group of students to Palestine and Israel, where we will be learning about the way we as US citizens are paying for the oppression of the Palestinian people. It's important to learn about those dynamics in a way that honors and respects the Jewish people. I celebrate and affirm the creation of a Jewish homeland and the 1967 borders, but I'm critical of the expansionist Zionist governments in modern Israel today. And I echo the teaching of theologian Walter Brueggemann, who said, important initiatives must be taken to secure the rights of Palestinians. In his book, Chosen, Reading the Bible Amid the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, Brueggemann wrote, it is a mistake to connect the current state of Israel to some imagined messianic timeline that results in unilateral support for Israel and to, to permit theological categories to blind us to the facts on the ground that entail occupation, oppression, and suffering. I don't believe in hell as a place where people go after they die to be punished, but I do believe in hell on earth. And all too often, that kind of hell is the result of what humans do to one another. How many of you have gone to see the First Americans Museum already? Yes, I'm seeing some waves, nods. Something Oklahoma can really be proud of. The history that is documented there shows many parallels between what's happening to the Palestinian people now and the betrayal of land rights the breaking of treaties, and the genocide of indigenous people on this continent. I hope that you get to see the museum because it also documents the resilience and the hope, the new life rising in First Americans' communities. I think this scripture cautions us not to rush too quickly to a happy ending, though to confidence that we can fix or repair 
or reconcile sorrows from history. Because Jesus does say, when sorrows come, that won't be the end. And yet, those sorrows cannot be denied. The word apocalypse has the meaning in our time of some terrible destruction of the end of the world. And so this scripture is often linked to apocalyptic stories or writings in our time. And yet, for the ancient people, the word apocalypse simply meant revelation. It meant a symbolic vision that would be interpreted by a heavenly interpreter, but it always had to do with a cataclysmic contest that ended with the triumph of good over evil. And so Jesus said, when you hear war and rumors of war, nations will lift up might against a nation, kingdoms against kingdom. That is the beginning of the sorrows, but that's not the end. Sorrow is never the end of the story. A few years ago, I was in Nicaragua and a man told me a story about the United States and our tendency to always rush to the happy ending with confidence in our own ability to make things work out in a hopeful way. So here's the story. There were three missionaries. They were on a journey in a, in a jungle in a very remote area. One was a Frenchman, one was an Englishman, one was an American. So as they were traveling through this very remote jungle, they ran into a group of indigenous leaders who sized them up and could tell they were not up to any good. They were not gonna be helpful. And so they decided to kill the missionaries. They built a guillotine and said, okay, we're gonna kill each one of you on this guillotine. We're gonna start with the Frenchman. They said, you have one choice. Do you wanna die looking up or looking down. And the Frenchman said, well, I want to die looking up at the heaven where I'm headed, at the beauty and majesty of my maker. So they laid him down on the guillotine, and they dropped the blade. But the blade got stuck halfway down. Well, the natives looked at each other, and they said, this is a sign. We're not supposed to kill this guy after all. And so they said, you're free to go. Next, the Englishman. You're going to be executed. Do you want to be facing up or down? And the Englishman said, oh, I, to show my humility, I want to be facing down toward the ground. So they laid him down. They dropped the guillotine. And once again, the blade got stuck halfway down. Well, they said, another miracle. This must be a sign. You're not supposed to be killed today. You're free to go. Now the American do you want to be killed looking up or down? Oh, I really don't care. So they laid him down, facing up, looking up at the guillotine. As they dropped the blade, it got stuck halfway down, and the American said, you know, I can fix that for you. <laughs> All too often in my time in Nicaragua, I've seen that kind of super confidence cultural superiority, assurance that 
through our brain power and our ingenuity, we can fix just about anything. I don't know about you, but I've had times in my life when I discovered things I absolutely could not fix. This last week, we celebrated Veterans Day, and I have a son who's a veteran. He was in the Air Force, I'm sorry, he was in the Army, in the 101st Airborne in the Army for eight and a half years. He served for a year in Iraq, but it was the time when he was in Afghanistan for a year in combat that was the hardest time of my life. And I can tell you that nothing no experience has brought me to my knees in the way that that did. There were many nights when I woke up in terror, having dreamed that a messenger was at the door with news of my son's death. I had a couple of friends who would say to me during that time, your son's gonna be okay. I'm praying for your son and he's gonna be okay. Well, that really made me angry when people said that. It made me angry at the false promise that my son would be okay when other families did not wake up from a nightmare, when news that their son had died was not merely a bad dream. It made me angry and sad that this person who was praying for my son had such a pitiful view of prayer, as if prayer was a method to get what we want a technique to ensure our desired outcome. I had to finally accept that my son's path was his own journey between him and God. I had to find patience and a deep knowing way beyond my understanding, a knowing that he would indeed be okay, and that he would be okay even if he was killed, that he would be okay even if he killed others. There may be things in your life now, or there may have been in the past, or there may be in the future that you cannot fix. A marriage, a disease process, the sorrow of your child, your own broken heart. But the good news is that sorrow is not the end of the story. And that there is a kind of power beyond our understanding. And so I close today with a reference to the two-week global climate conference in Glasgow, Scotland that is just coming to an end. Thinking about climate change, I've been so troubled in recent years thinking about climate change and the loss, destruction, and devastation of animal species, ha habitats, and human civilizations due to climate change. But there is some good news. Jesus told us to continue sharing good news. And so I'm delighted as I hear 
that there have been major advances toward fusion energy in recent years. Fusion energy has been around as a concept for a long time, but an MIT-designed project has made some major advances. Scientists report that recently that they have been paving the way for practical, commercial, inexpensive, carbon-free power through fusion energy. Courtney Vinapal reported this last week that fusion, which occurs when two positively charged nuclei merge, promises to deliver a reliable, clean energy source, and that the news is so good that private sector investors are recognizing the promise and now putting money into fusion energy startups. There are sorrowful times of travail. Jesus says, don't be led astray, don't give in to the powers of destruction. When we reach the end of our ability to fix things, we may be tempted to rely on dominance, force, mighty power over others, to be the ones that survive even if no one else does. But that is not the way of Jesus. So don't deny that sorrows will come and don't be troubled. Give voice to gratitude, hope, and good news. Sorrow is not the end. The power greater than ourselves is giving birth to new creation. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 10 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.